Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shkalim Daf Yudbet, page twelve. Okay, now the interesting thing about the Mishnah that opens page twelve is that it is already discussed, or the content of it is already discussed on page Yudal from page eleven, which we deferred until to be able to talk about it in the chronological order, I guess. You know, namely that let's talk about the Mishnah first and then how the Gemara handles it. Okay, so basically, first of all, you'll you've already heard that we're gonna be talking about the artisans, the craftspeople, and their wages. But before that, right, that's the part that was connected, I guess. That's where it was connected to Yudalf. But what happens first is there's a discussion here of one who consecrates, one who, who sanctifies all of his possessions. And he does not say specifically for what, he does not designate it. And then the question is, what do you do with that, right? If he says it's stam, meaning there's no spe- specificity in his in his consecration, then, then any of the things that are in fact suitable for communal offerings, you know, then they can in fact they become communal offerings, right? They can't just be used for the maintenance of the Beit HaMikdash. If they're, if these items were not suitable for the communal offerings, then they could be, right? So then the question is, how exactly does this work? So basically they say, again, Rabbi Kiva's position is that you could give the artisans these items as their wages, and then they desacralize them, as we already discussed, right? They take the consecration off of them, basically, and that's the position of Rabbi Akiva. Ben Azay says, however, that's not how they do it. That's not the method that they used. Rather, what they did is that they would set aside, right, from those same consecrated items, they would take the value that's owed to the artisans for their wages. They would take off the sanctity of those by transferring that sanctity onto the money that's allocated for the artisans' wages. Then they give them those items, which are no longer consecrated to the artisans as their wages, right? And then, and then the, the artisans themselves, or the, um, no, I'm sorry, the treasurers from the temple, should then they come and they repurchase those same items using that money uh, so that they take the un, the de-consecrated items from the artisans and give them the money instead, and it's, this is a big circle that we already discussed. Um, I want to, just before we go on, understand what's talking about some, when the Mishnah talks about Hamakadish Nechasav, somebody who consecrates all of their possessions, right? So the fact is, the moment you say that you're going to concentrate all your possessions, then you, they technically are designated for temple maintenance if they're not fit for communal offerings. But the question I have is, you know, what is the person thinking when they come to consecrate all of their possessions? It seems a bit much. It seems that they are, you know, making a dramatic statement or that they are going overboard in some way or another. It just seems to be really a lot. And I looked and I looked and I did not see any commentary explaining particularly why one would be doing this. But what I did find is, and the Gemara talks about it explicitly, is that why the Mishnah talks about this is because there's a Pasuk in Vayikra in Leviticus that says explicitly, 
one who would come and consecrate all of their items. So then, then you have to address the Gemara has to address this. The the halacha has to address what is the circumstance, what is the result, independent of why one might do this. Again, my inclination is to think that this is somebody who is, you know, kind of caught up in the moment and goes beyond what is ever going to be demanded. Nobody is required to consecrate all of their items. I'm going to continue in the Mishnah. It's another one of these long Mishnah. So one who consecrates all of his possessions and doesn't specify why he's done so or what the purpose is, meaning what they're going to be used for. And then among all those possessions, the person has an animal which is suitable for the Mizbeach. And then the question is, well, if is is it male or is it female? What's going to be done with it? Rabbi Lezer Omer is charim yim karulat sarchei olot v'nekivut yim karulat sarchei zivchei shlamim. So, depending on what the what the sex of the animal is, it's going to dictate which kind of korban it's going to be. If it's a male animal, it will become an ola, a korban ola, where the entirety of it is burned on the mizbeach. And if it is a female animal, it will become a shlamim, a shlamim, which is you know part to Hashem and part to the mizbeach and part to the person who brings the korban. And any of these female animals, right, which cannot be brought as as burnt offerings, then they can be they also can be sold for the needs of the peace offerings for the shlamim, right? Including to the people who will then sacrifice them as a shlamim, right? It doesn't have to be that it's sacrificed by the person who consecrated all of his valuables, all of his items, actually, not just valuables. Rather, that once the animal is consecrated. It can become um, somebody else's korban, right? And then that monetary value from the sale to the person who needs a shlamim can, is then that goes to the rest of the with the rest of his property for bedekabayit to to protect the to pay for the temple maintenance. That's Rabbi Eliezer's, Eliezer's statement. Rabbi Yeshua says, olot." So the real difference, I think, between these positions is, again, they both, Rabbi Yoshua also will say that the males will become olot and then the kivot will be sold for the needs to pay for the zivchei shlamim, for the korban shlamim. And then they will be brought, the value of that will be brought to purchase olot, to purchase burnt offerings as opposed to temple maintenance. Um, and everybody agrees that everything else would go to bedekabayit, meaning temple maintenance. Um, the fact is, I think it's been a long time and there's Corona and who knows what's changed, but it used to be that at the Kotel, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, there was a box like in the stone, um, a metal box in the stone, at least in the women's section, that said Lebedeca Bayit. And any any donations that were put in that box went to the upkeep of the Kotel Plaza and so on. Um Rabbi Akiva says he likes the position of Rabbi Lezer more than he likes the position of Rabbi Yoshua. Again, the distinction being, um, according to Rabbi Lezer, the, the money from the sale would go to temple maintenance as compared to buying the burnt offerings. So why, is it, why does Rabbi Akiva prefer, prefer Rabbi Lezer? Because Rabbi Lezer applied that same approach equally across the board, both to the animals and to all the other possessions, which are supposed to be consecrated towards Bedekabai, towards the temple maintenance, as opposed to Rabbi Yeshua, who drew a distinction between them, in which case the inconsistency is what's bothering Rabbi Akiva. 
Amar of Papias. He's a new member of Chazal. He's really here in Shkalim. And we can say that he's, here's what we know. He was among the sages who were in Yavna, right? Yavna at the time, at the generation of the destruction of the temple. It seems that he's younger than Rabbi Yeshua. Um, in, you know, we don't know much about him. We don't know much about his offspring. The word itself, Papia, seems to mean the word that's from Greek, right? That means, and it seems to be able to mean uh, father or grandfather or perhaps even priest, uh, which I find interesting. I actually had neighbors growing up whose last name was Papas. I don't know how that's connected. Amar of Papias. So he says, Rabbi Papias disagrees with Rabbi Given. He says, I can understand both the positions of Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yoshua. Somebody who is more explicit in the way that he, um, when he consecrates all of his all of his property, if he says that his, his animals are to be included, then that means that he's going to say he wants the animals with the rest of the possessions. That means that they should be they should be consecrated for the same purpose, namely Bedeka by the temple maintenance. But if he does not say it explicitly, you know, saying that this includes the animals, then there's no way, there's no reason to think that he wants the animals consecrated in the same direction as everything else. In which case, the moment you have animals that are suitable for Korban Olah, that should make more sense, again, according to the position of Rabbi Yeshua, Rav Papias likes it as well. And then lastly, as we come to the end of this long Mishnah, what happens if the consecration includes items, not animals, but other suitable items for offerings on the Mizbech, like wine, for libations, or oils that could be used for the green offerings, right? Or fowl, um, meaning whether they're pigeons or turtle doves, whatever, that could be used for the bird offerings. So Rabbi Lezer says, sell that stuff, right, for the needs of that same kind of thing, for anybody who's going to then use those items to be that kind of offering. And then that monetary value will come, you know, and again, it's going to be like Olot, and, any, and everything else will go to Bedekabayit. So Rabbi Yeshua, I would say, is, is consistent. Um, and the Mishnah is really trying to address all of the different property that a person could have that would be suitable for use in the temple once it's already been consecrated, right? Obviously, you can consecrate anything, and that, but that doesn't mean that the anything is then going to be usable in the way the temple functions. So then all of those things, those anything consecrations has to go through the process of removing the, the sanctity from it to be able to use that money and put that money towards the same bite that presumably the person who did this intended. Um, the fact that the that the person does not specify is kind of distressing, right? Because it doesn't include enough information about what the person really wanted. And again, I would hypothesize that this is really discussed because there is a verse that says, what if somebody does all this? Well, I think they're really trying to account for all different scenarios and recognize that sometimes language is really not specific enough. But yet when it comes to sanctity of items within the Beit HaMikdash, everything has to be so specific. And so I think that's the tension that lies in the Mishnah. It's very easy for somebody to say, oh, I'm giving this to the Beit HaMikdash. But what exactly does that mean? And again, I think in a way to make sure that nothing was misused or could have been suspected of being misused in a way that it was not 
meant to be. There's a lot of rules in place to make sure things sort of get funneled to where they should be funneled to. Is it for purchasing things? Is it to purchase korbanot? Is it to purchase other consecrated items? Is it just for the bedak habayit? And sort of seeing all the different streams of, you know, you know how those things are basically all kept separate in a certain way, the purchasing of those items. They're, they're not really, they're not intermingled together. And if you think about it, you know, when you have a budget for anything, whether it's your household or an organization, but let's think about it in terms of an organization, because that's what the Beit HaMikdash was, right? We keep different, you know, line items or different budgets for different things. And I think that's exactly what this mission is trying to do here. Right. And the one other thing I just wanted to note is that there's no backsees, right? Meaning once you've done this consecration, once you've said such a thing, then then there's a long, complicated process of how to handle it. You don't get to say, oops, I didn't mean it. Once once something has become Kodesh, it is it is now Kodesh and it has to be treated as such. Right. Um, I'm going to move on to one other piece here, uh, which was interesting that was brought. And so the Gemara brings a brisa here. This is an Amud Bet. And it reads as follows. So somebody designated a female animal, right, to be his Ola or his Pesach or his um, Asham. So we know that these are Korbanot that only a male can be or can be basically offered as an Ola, Pesach, or Asham. So therefore, a female who is designated to be for one of these Korbanot, right, would have to be sold. And then you would basically take that money and purchase uh, the correct uh, korban for, for those korban or the correct animal. Rabbi Shimon Omer, uh, sorry, so it says here, Osa Tamura. He can make a Tamura of it. So we'll go back. That's what I want to talk about. Let me just finish this price here. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Tamura. For his Ola, he can make a Tamura. But the other two categories, he cannot make it a Tamura. Rabbi Shimon Ben Yehuda Omer Mishum Rabbi Shimon. So Rabbi Shimon ben Yehuda says in the name of Rabbi Shimon, He says you can't make a tamur in any of these cases um, at all. So I wanted to do a little bit of like a who's who of a tamura because I think this is actually a concept, a uh, halachi category that we have really not encountered yet. Even with all our discussion of hegdesh and korbanos, this is not one that we've we've had. And so the idea of tamura that if you have an animal that you basically already designated uh, to be, um, well, let's say you designated an animal already for a korban, okay? You cannot designate another, another animal to take place of that animal. Um, there's no exchanges, basically, <laughs> right? Like no backsies, there's no ex- exchanges. So once you designate one animal to be a korban, you cannot now say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I, you know what? I decided I didn't want to give that goat. I'm going to take a different goat and designate it. And so this is based on a Pasuk in Vayikra, um, in Perik uh, Chavzayin, Pasuk Good, chapter 27, verse 10. So, which basically says you can never do anything. You can't make substitute animals. And so what basically happens is, is that if you do do that, so you try to designate another animal, essentially both of those animals now have some type of sanctity to it. And so what they're trying to figure out here is, is that in this case, we're talking about where somebody, you know, basically designated an animal that could never serve as the korban that it was meant to be to serve as. 
And so can you actually say that that animal in the end just takes on uh, Tamura? Um, that we basically are going to say that it has some types of Kedusha to it, has some type of sanctity to it. Um, and then basically what this would mean, and again, we're going to have a Masachet called Tamura. This will be much, much later on in a few years where we will talk about this. Um, that basically, so let's say this animal that is, you know, designated as Tamura, what eventually could happen to it is you could basically send it out to Greece and then once it's blemished, then you could go and redeem it. So it's interesting to see, and I think it makes sense, this is sort of the inverse of what's happening in the Mishnah, right? The Mishnah is talking about people who go ahead and want to designate many of their possessions, and that could include animals, which are fit for korbanos. Tamura is, we sort of try to switch around what you had originally intended, and ultimately, based on this Pasuk, right, it's a lotase, it's listed as one of the, the Rambam actually lists it, as one of the 613 meets votes, and it's one of the lotases, one of the transgressions, you're not actually ever allowed to do that. And we'll eventually get to a whole masachet about this, is what Tamur is exa- exactly, um, and all of the ideas uh, behind it, and, and, and how exactly does uh, Tamura, how exactly does Tamura work? You know, what are you allowed to exchange? What are you not allowed to exchange? And that's really a lot of what that masachet is going to um talk about. So again, I just thought it was interesting how they sort of brought in this Brisa talking about Tamur because it's kind of the opposite of what this Mishnah is trying to do. I like the no exchanges. I mean, yes, <laughs> it is exactly what this mission is trying to do. But I, I think that the I think that the whole idea of Tamura, which I think is kind of a, uh, you know, when we talked, when we were preparing, we talked about this being there's a little bit of a mind boggling aspect to it. Right. I think that Part of it is the idea that exactly this, hello, aren't we not supposed to be able to exchange anything that has to do with hectation? Yet here we've come up with a whole patent, a whole sequence of events that will allow for it. Um, I just want to clarify one thing that actually the Rambam says that there's three separate commandments there with Tamura, that you can't substitute an animal uh, for for another animal that was already designated as a korban. The new animal right? The second piece of it is, is that that new animal, in addition to the already consecrated animal, both of them have some type of kadusha to it. Um, and the idea that you can't exchange animals uh, for different types of korbanos. So, well, again, we will, God willing, spend a lot of time talking about this uh, when we get to that well into our Dafyomi study. But I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about it today. That's our last discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, re- review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about these kinds of holy exchanges. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>